Shear. Recorded live. Hello, this is Jeff Shear. This is the Public Defender Trainers Mastermind Conference Call in July of 2016. And today we're going to be talking about something called the Public Defender Motivational Triad. Um, Kathy Bennett is going to be talking about it with me, Jeff Shear. And I'm going to turn things over to Kathy to get us started. Go ahead, Kathy. Um, hi, everybody. Um, welcome to the call. Um, so you all know Jeff Shear, who is our you know, fearless leader um, and someone to whom we all owe a huge debt of thanks because he has so consistently over the years taken a leadership role on pulling you know, trainers from all over the place together to share resources and ideas. And, um, and these, these calls are the latest uh, iteration and manifestation of that effort. And so, um, speaking for myself and everyone else, we're very grateful to you for that, Jeff. Oh, um, thanks. Just, it's selfish on my point. It's, it's a great way for me to, to get ideas from other people. Um, so, thank you for all of you playing along with me, helping me do my job. So, today, you're welcome, Jeff. Um, so, today, um, Jeff is going to talk with us about a model that he, he created um, and that, that uh, he's still actually developing that he calls the Public Defender Motivation Triad. And um, I'm going to turn it over to just say, Jeff, can you tell us, um, in, in a nutshell, what is the Public Defender uh, Motivation Triad and what spurred you to do the work to create it? Yeah, and I actually, there's a typo in the slide there, and I'm trying to correct that for those of you watching. It's a, I actually call it the Public Defender Motivational Triad right now, um, just because I think that sounds cool, and I'm very open to other words for that. Um, what got me thinking about this is about 10, 12 years ago in our agency, the recruiter position was moved from being an HR position into the education branch um, for a variety of reasons, but one of them was you know, a feeling that it needed to be in, in a part of the agency that was really focused on the work we do and why we do it and the client-centeredness and have less of a kind of a state personnel aspect of who we're looking for for this job. So when that was being discussed, um, I started, I read a bunch of articles, including a couple of the ones that I sent to you guys, and started to think about how it is that we find the best public defenders and who are the best public defenders and what motivates them to do this work. And the article that I sent you by Abby Smith um, played into this, I think, in a big way on a subconscious level. And it helps me understand why groups um, like uh, Led Zeppelin are being sued right now, um, where you think that it's an original idea, but you actually it's because you heard that song once before. Um, I think at some point, at one point in time, I thought I came up with this, but then I, I think it came from the fact I'd read Abby Smith's article a year before, and I just kind of have modified it for my purposes. Uh, but in, the, in thinking about how to, it started out thinking about how we best find people, what questions would we be asking, what are we looking for in hiring public defenders is where this started. And I guess what I, uh, I talk about what it is, and then kind of out of that, it's grown into we use it a lot of other ways. 
Dr. Schultz, are you Kathleen? Should I go on? Or do you yeah, have another question? Yeah, no, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us what it is and um, and then how you use it? Okay. So what I put up on the, the slides that's up there is the one that looks kind of like the flux inhibitor from um, Back to the Future is the way I draw this. Other people draw it as, as a triangle. Uh, Rap does, and people have seen him teach about it with Gideon's Promise. Draw more as a triangle. doesn't really matter, but that's what I'm doing now. Um, that I, what I've, I've experienced, and I think is described in a way in Abby Smith's article, is that people who do this work has great client-centered public defenders, and I think it goes beyond just the lawyers, um, come to it from three kind of motivational frameworks that are out there. One, I'm calling the mentor right now, but I'm not really fond of that name. Um, Raph calls it the social worker, and that's what I was calling it. Um, it's the person who really connects with their clients and the days that they love on the job or when they really make a difference for a client. Sometimes that's seen as going beyond the scope of what a public defender should do. Um, they're helping their clients get to work. They're you know, counseling them. Um, you know, another name that people have given is this should be called the counselor or the guide, or I uh, think Kathy suggested the life coach recently when you're talking. Um, but it's the people who, who love that individual one-on-one -on -one connection and making a difference in one person's life. And there are definitely people who come to this work from that point of view who are very client-centered in their work and do a great job of that. The other one, another one is the warrior. Um, this one, I think everybody uses this term real similar to this. Um, it's people who come to this job because they love the fight, um, but not just any fight. They like to fight for the underdog. They love the fact that the government pays them to make the government look bad. Um, what better job could you have than that? So they come to this with that angle, and there are definitely warriors out here that are going to be great client-centered public defenders. And the last of these is the activist. Um, I think Rat calls this the, the movement builder. I think I like activists a little bit more. I, I talk more about that one later. Um, but those are the people who are, who are big picture people who are in this because they want to change the world, who may have grown up listening to uh, Bob Dylan and 60s songs, um, feel like that's where they should have been, should have been alive then, who um, are realizing that it's still going on today. Um, but they're, they're people who are in this for systems change and um, really enjoy those moments where they're able to have a bigger impact on the system or on a bunch of clients at the same time. Um, the warriors is probably obvious. And the warriors are in it because they love to win for their clients. Um, they love the fight and they love the win that they can get there along the way. So as I was you know, thinking about this with recruiting, we started – um, developing questions that would help us think of, you know, kind of flesh this out with people, um, and then actually just talking about it in interviews and having people reflect on what they think of this model and whether they see themselves fitting in it one way or another, and just having a discussion about it in that framework. And um, were you, Jeff, you and I have talked about this before. Um, in your hiring, were you looking for one one of these personality types or default motivations over others, or um, how were you? No, not really. Uh, yeah, the main thing is to, is that they were fitting into this model. Um, you know, I kind of I, I visualize this as like a solar system, 
um, where the client-centered representation there is the sun and there's a gravitational field around it. But there are other solar systems out there like lawyer-centered representation or judge-centered representation or community-centered representation. Um, and we're not looking for those people. Um, you know, so I'm trying to look for people who are in the solar system that their motivations for interviewing with us and just kind of their mindset about the world would be consistent with them being client-centered in their approach to the work that they do. And, and I don't know, uh, do you, should we go in, do you think, Kathy, we should talk a little bit about more what liar, those other centeredness might mean, I guess? Um, I'm sorry, say that again? I, I, let, me, uh, I'm gonna, so, let me give an example. So lawyer-centered representation would be, you know, representation that is focused on what's best for the lawyer. Ultimately, when there's a tough decision, the lawyer's worried about their reputation um, a lot of times you know, private lawyers will go off the rails because they're concerned more about their reputation and they may throw a client onto the bus because of how it impacts them. Um, and public defenders can end up there. You know, judge-centered representation is, you know, that I need to make the judge happy. Um, and that leads the day. If there's a tough call on what to do in a case, I may do something. I may not file a motion because that judge is going to be angry with me where if I was being client-centered, I would file that motion and be fine with the judge being angry with me. Um, so I think that there are probably models out there that I haven't played with yet about what those things look like. Um, but those are other solar systems in this universe. I'm trying to get people who are, their gravitational field pulls them towards being client-centered. And Jeff, when you're, when you're doing the interviewing um, with this model in mind, do you actually lay it out for job applicants and you know walk through it with them? At that I don't think we do it in a formal every single job interview, but I think you know during the process of them getting hired, we do three steps of job interviews, and one or two of the people are going to talk to them about this model and kind of and just get their reflections on it, and usually they will understand it and say this is kind of where I am. Um, I think mm -hmm. it also plays out a little bit in thinking about placing people. Um, because I think this model can apply kind of in a global way to offices. You know, I think in Kentucky, we definitely have offices that are mostly warriors, and they have that mindset, and we have offices that are mostly mentors. And you think about, you know, if I'm sending somebody who is, comes from one of these points of views into an office that's mostly the other points of view, are there are things that I need to do to help them adjust and talk to the leader about. Um, but I think overall, the diversity is good, and you'd like an office that has all of this going on, um, and people strong in each one of these. I've got you. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some. Does anybody have any questions um, that you might want to ask Jeff just about that, how he uses it in thinking about hiring and placement? Okay. Um, Jeff, it, unless there's something more you want to say about this, and I don't mean to cut it off, uh, do you want to move on to talking about how you use it in a training context? Yeah. Um, let's go to um, this kind of next step is these lines that I have here. So, um, What happened before I even started really using it with training is, um, boy, about 10 years ago, uh, John Rapping asked, his sister Allison and I to lead a focus group with a bunch of the graduates of Gideon's Promise 
kind of looking at what happened with burnout and why people didn't continue or, or left this work. And during that two-day discussion, you know, they were just they were talking about what motivates them, and it kind of brought me reminded me of this triangle thing that I was using in recruiting. And I drew this up for them. And what we kind of discovered, and I think Abby Smith was already ahead of us and I had forgotten it, um, is that the ability to bounce around between these is something that career public defenders tend to all have come easily to them without thinking. Um, probably everybody on this call was, is thinking that as I'm trying to force you into a box. It may be hard the longer you've done this and the more you've developed your practice. Um, that people who are able to, if they're strongly a mentor and they have a bad mentor day, they can bounce to a different one of these ways of finding motivation for the work and feel good about what they're doing. So an example that I give in, in training in other places is, um, so say you're a mentor, social worker, one client at a time sort of person, and you've developed this great alternative medicine plan, and you've set your client up with treatment, with drug and alcohol treatment, with a job, you've dealt with their collateral consequences, everything's in place. All they need to do is take the plea, and then they have a chance of getting it diverted if they successfully complete what they're doing. And you go to present this to them, and you think it's all set, and your client says, you know, I know you won that trial last week. I've changed my mind. Uh, put them in the box. I want to go to trial. And you know that this is not the trial that's going to go well. Um, you know, so some public defenders, when that happens, they go home and they beat themselves up and feel like they failed. Um, I didn't do what was best for my client. I set up all this stuff, and I couldn't help my client make the right decision. Um, and, and for some people, that you know, that happens enough, and they can't. They decide they can't do this work anymore, or they burn out. I think the people who stay with us then shift gears, and they just go. They get themselves into this warrior mode. Okay, you know, I'm going to take it to trial. Let's go. You never know what's going to go to happen to trial. I might think it's going to be a rough case right now, but things happen. Um, and they just shift gears, and they put themselves in the warrior mode, and they get into trial psychosis, and they just go for it. Um, and they feel good about that, um, being the warrior and fighting for emotions and expression issues and evidentiary issues, and they just go at it. Um, but then that, that could also go wrong. You know, there are warriors out there who sometimes lose. Um, so if, that, if you lost in that, then being able to shift gears again and get into an activist kind of point of view of what you just did, that there were some good issues that we had, I preserved those issues, I made a record, I made the prosecutor fight. I made them look bad in front of voters. Um, the judge now sees how I fight and how I work through a case. Um, my client has a right to make a bad decision and to have somebody stand by him and fight for that. And I feel good that I did that stuff. Um, and that's kind of shifting your mindset into the activist point of view. So in this discussion with the focus group there, that we had in Birmingham with the Gideon's Promise people, and then I had a similar group meeting of four to six-year lawyers in Kentucky. You know, we talked about this model being helpful in thinking about building resilience um, and building the ability to come back from tough days. And that, that's led into some training things and some stuff I hope that we can brainstorm later, and then led into um, teaching supervisors about this. And I, I use this with supervisors when they're thinking about coaching people. 
um, that they having an idea of which one of these is the strongest motivator for each of your staff, I think, is helpful. Um, when you're dealing with them having rough days, helping them see the value of the other two um, in what they did. They made a difference in one of these on every day, I believe, um, if you frame it the right way. Um, that's helpful for supervisors to be able to do. Um, and that, that belief actually comes from one of my mom. My mom's theory on tense parenting was that um, my sister and I, she, she made us always have three major activities going on in our lives. Um, so one of them was school, and both of us were very into theater. And we were happy just doing that, but she really encouraged us to do other things. Um, so my sister was a cheerleader for a while. I was editor for the newspaper. And we wouldn't have done that on our own, but it was from this theory that my mom had that just our self-esteem would be okay because out of those three things, one thing has always got to be going well. Um, was her approach. And I think that translates into this, that you can have a really bad day as a mentor and a warrior, but you can look at it from an activist point of view and feel like you did something. And I think it applies with the other ones as well. So I think in that way it's a helpful tool for supervisors in helping people with resilience and with rough days. The other way I think it's helpful with supervisors is in placement of people in courts. If you have somebody who is a warrior and they're in a court where they just don't get enough fights, <laughs> the pleas are good, the prosecutors have been trained over years to offer appropriate pleas and they're not getting trials. And, you know, if you know that that person's a warrior and you have any flexibility, you may try to create a situation where they could be in a fight. Um, and I think that applies for the other ones as well. Um, one of the things that uh, Really struck me from um, the Abby Smith article that, that you that you sent us was the um, was uh, that sort of ties into the warrior um, piece of, of the way she thinks about things and um, it has to do with with you know the struggle um, the ongoing struggle and the willingness to fight um, and to bring your best professional craft to each and every you know case um, at all stages of the case but the understanding that um, you know, that, that we have to condition our new people to understand that um, there are lots of different types of victories and being ready at, and to, to appreciate small victories because often we go to trial and we lose, um, and uh, for, for example. So, you know, I think this really ties in really beautifully to some of the other ethos building that we do throughout training um, and supervision with newer folks. Um, so uh, when, you, um, when you introduced this um, uh, and started using it more regularly, Jeff, how was it received in Kentucky? Uh, fairly well. Um, you know, I, think I, I have the same dynamic that I've got the of you do. Um, I, I get received far better when I'm out of state than when I'm in state. Um, so there's, you know, that sort of dynamic that goes on. Um, but I, I see people talking about it. I see other people using it and coming back to me with ideas. You know, one thing that one strategy that I use is I set this up as an experiment. You know, that this isn't something that I've been playing with. Understanding these articles helped me make it better. And I think that dynamic has helped a lot. Um, and I use that 
a great deal when I'm teaching experienced people rather than this is, you know, I've, I've figured it out or I've read this article and I want to share my knowledge with you. It's, you know, a dynamic of let's, does this make sense to you guys? What do you think? Um, can you come up with a better word than mentor? Um, and I find that that's effective and I get people coming to me later or emailing me a month later and saying, I was thinking about that thing. What about this? Or here's a word that you might want to use. Um, so I found that helps a great deal. Um, but I guess my, my measure of how it's received is I, I hear people talking about it and using it when I'm not, a, you know, they don't know I'm around. Um, so I think it, it's being integrated and it's kind of becoming a common language, particularly among supervisors in the agency. Well, Jeff, as you know, I, um, I first saw this at Gideon's Promise and um, where it then, be, it uh, wrapped and incorporated into the core Summer Institute um, curriculum right at the beginning of the course um, after you worked on it with the graduates. Um, and as soon as I saw it, I knew it was something that would really, uh, that I thought was exciting and, and a very cool way to engage in lots of different types of conversations throughout training. So we started using it immediately. And I have to tell you that um, that at least in our new lawyer training class, which is where, where I use it uh, most, it winds up coming up throughout the rest of the, we train them for a month. It comes up throughout the rest of the month and then throughout other training um, events that we do with them later in the year. People buy into the terminology and into the way of thinking, into the way of thinking about it. Um, uh, so however it's received quietly in Kentucky, it's enthusiastically received elsewhere, everywhere I know of that it's been used. Yeah, I'm glad um, to hear that. I think it, it sits on the people can remember it and it, has, it rings true enough that it sticks with them. Um, Jeff, it, when you're, so I, that piece that you were just saying uh, a moment ago, I, I just uh, want to talk for a second about the challenge sometimes of uh, working with more experienced lawyers or supervisors and a topic like this, you could see people feeling um, maybe a little, um, skeptical or why you're making me listen to this. So I, I love that technique that I've seen you use effectively. I just want to make sure we're, um, that everybody's clear about what you're doing. When you're working in that group, you approach lowering your own status and building a more co collaborative learning experience with everyone by presenting it as an experiment and, experiment and getting their thoughts about it. And um, before you know it, there's buy-in. Um, yeah, and that, that's kind of the fault I use. Um, you know, when I'm, you know, I've just, today I've been working with the capital, uh, you know, a team on capital board here all day. Um, and, you know, when you're working with more experienced attorneys or more just more experienced people, you know, they, they have to protect their own status and they have to protect, the, you know, whatever they've done in the past that you may be challenging on some level in their view, um, you know, that, aspect is at play where somebody who's new to a job, they have this open, free freedom to just admit, I don't know, you guys tell me. Um, but after you've been doing it 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, it's kind of hard to say, I don't know, you tell me. So I try to lower my status um, in terms of this is something I've been working on and other people have found it useful and um, you guys tell me. And I, you know, and I interrupt myself and ask them questions and try to make it more more feel like a brainstorming thing to them. And sometimes I'll criticize it with this one in particular because it 
tends to resonate with people quickly. Um, you know, I'll start criticizing it. I'll start quite you know, I don't know if this really works. And I find that there's there are people in the other room, in the room who will take up the argument that it does. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. once you get that, you know that's not you don't have that status issue anymore. Um, and they're engaged, and they start defending that this is yes, this makes sense. And they start getting examples of how they've shifted around or after they've seen it in other people. Um, so that's the dynamic I'm I'm trying to set up, especially if I'm using talking with supervisors about it. I also find with experienced people, um, Jeff, that often people will observe that they've been, they, they'd have to say that at different points in their careers, they've, they've, they've shifted around the, the triad, um, not just, you know, from moment to moment or case to case, but for periods, period, sustained periods in their careers where they've, that, um, and it's it's interesting to watch experienced people sort of have a light bulb go off about for them maybe that's what helped them stay and get through you know the the very low moments that we all have in this work. Yeah, I encourage for people to move around within this, particularly as people move up an org chart and there are more leadership positions and they get less day-to-day client work. Um, they need to be able to, you know, feel good about the activist role. Um, and if they can't do that, those are the folks who become a supervisor for a while and just and decide that's not for them um, because they they need that client interaction or they need the fight. You know, the other aspect that leaders run out of is they, they you know they don't just go get to go to court and fight people as much as they like to. Um, so, the higher the org chart you get, the more feeling good about the activist part of the role is important. In that Jeff, you so in addition to using it as a um, uh, as a way to promote resilience and prevent um, burnout, uh, I think that uh, you mentioned that you also use this in um, working with new lawyers on on ethical concerns. And could you tell us how this helps you um, helps you train lawyers of about how to be client-centered and ethical. Yeah, um, you know, one time I think it was in Birmingham. You know, one of the I was teaching this there, and one of the participants, Jesse, can't remember her last name, you know, came up to me afterwards and said, "You know, there's dark side to each one of those too." Um, and that got me thinking, and I think it's also probably buried, in, you know, buried in the back in my mind that Abby Smith wrote something about this too. Um, that you can take each one of these can go too far. And I think if you know which one you are, or you know which one the person you are supervising is, um, sometimes you can see this coming. So I'm switching slides to where it's small in the bottom right of the screen. Um, so if we looked at the activist, I think there's a pull for the activist to become the zealot, and and that pulls them away from being, um, you know. Kind of that gravitational field of the being client-centered, they're pulled way out there into this uh, area that may be unethical or may, uh, in other ways, be hurting themselves or their client. So an example would be if, you know, a public defender reads Michelle Alexander's work and decides that, yes, I want to crash the system by taking everything to trial, and they make the decision they're not going to take any pleas anymore, and they start pushing clients toward that. You know, that's crossing a line that's not ethical anymore. 
um, because they have clients who need that plea and they want that plea. Um, and if they're shading the way they describe what the plea is because they've got their personal agenda to take everything to trial, that's pulling them over away from the ethical area or being client-centered. So that works with the other ones as well. So if I shift this around, see if my chart's going to work. So if we go over to the mentor or social worker or counselor, you know, they can be pulled away from doing, working really hard for their client because of that one-on-one -one relationship and get into kind of being a best interest lawyer where they're substituting their own judgment or they may become kind of a parent figure to them where, you know, I don't care what you say, this is what you need. Um, this happens a lot in juvenile court where you'll see public defenders think, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing if he was in detention for a week. He could get away from his alcoholic father and then maybe something else could happen. Um, but he really wants to go home. Um, you know, and that's a natural pull, I think, for mentors to want so badly what's best for their clients that they cross over that line. And then that applies as well with the warrior. You know, they can go into just being about the fight and wanting, you know, relishing those moments when they can win in trial. Um, so, you know, the police officer's on the stand. Everything the police officer has to say in this case, helps my theory, but I know enough information that I can make them look really bad, I can make them look like a fool on the stand, and I can show that they're lying uh, about something unrelated to my theory, so I'm, I'm attracted to that and I go for that. Or I'm pushing my clients towards going to trial in cases and withholding information from them about things that might encourage them to take a plea. Um, so I think each one of them has this natural pull towards that, and if you're strongly one of them, like I'm strongly the activist, I think uh, I'm really easy for me to get pulled into this big picture thinking that may take me away from being client-centered. Um, so it's important to stay with that client-centeredness. And I think the way you do that is when you feel that pull, it comes back to these arrows I'm putting up here, um, is rather than be pulled out of that client-centered universe into bad, non-client-centered, unethical things, is letting yourself shift gears um, and don't go that route. So if you're the activist who feels like, yes, I want to crash the system and take nothing, you know, nothing, everything goes to trial, nothing goes to play out, shift gears and go into the mentor and think about this individual client and connecting them and re reconnecting them with them about what they want in this situation. It may not be go to trial or it may be. So I see this as, see this drawing is there, so there's this kind of boundary area that I put up there on the slide between these where there's this gray area that you can cross over um, and the idea is to stay away from that gray area that can get into you know, clear ethical violations or just clearly not being client-centered and shifting over into another centeredness. So I think I have one more slide about a way to think about this is I think it's natural for the mentor to be pulled into this view of I'm going to decide what's best for you or best interest practice. It's easy for the warrior to feel a pull towards what's best for me is to win. I want to let that a notch on my belt. And the activist is going to be pulled into this big picture kind of view of what's best for all of us. How's the movement going to go? How are we going to deal with civil rights issues on a broad scale? And that pulls them away from that client-centeredness. Um, so I've used this 
model in working with new attorneys, you know, usually about six months into their career, where one, one approach that's worked really well, and I think I need to go back to it, um, is rather than me creating a bunch of case problems that forced them into this, is I, I presented the model to them, and they divided themselves into which one of these three they felt the strongest about that day. Um, so they, some were mentors, activists, warriors. And I asked them, come up with a case problem and, and act it out for the other rest of the group where that pull creates an issue for you. Um, so examples I've seen is the mentors did a case problem about competency or a case with a competency issue um, where the client wants to take the plea, but you're pretty sure they're incompetent. How does that play out, and how do we make decisions in those sort of difficult situations? And, and I, I'm vacillated between using case problems where I have more control or giving them control that way, um, just because it's hard to give up control and you don't know what you're going to get. Um, but I've found the times when I've let them come up with case problems, it's been really interesting, and they've come up with some creative stuff I haven't thought about. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, keeping that balance of the case problems that you to reach the stuff you absolutely know you must reach for your goals that day, and just uh, letting them self-direct. Um, that's I mean, it's a very cool way to do it. I have Well, we're on this topic, sorry, Kathy, that the other way that I've seen this recently in doing leadership training is hearing leaders talk about the issues in their office. Let's say I've got this one lawyer who just and they're calling the judge a racist and they're filing all these motions and they're trying to change the world every day and all the time. The judge is calling me. Um, and, you know, and I think that's an example because the activist who may be being pulled too far. I think that's a conversation the supervisor needs to find out whether they're on track by doing that or whether they need to pick their battles or what that's going on with that. So I think this plays out in, in supervision as well. I think the mentors are folks who are going to more likely have boundary issues with their clients um, and develop relationships that supervisors might be concerned about or definitely cross lines and have you know, sexual relationships with their clients or become or driving them around between things to the point where it's getting in the way of other stuff. Um, I think this also has an application in thinking about coaching people and, and watching for things that can be these slippery slopes towards issues that they may run into. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jeff. And there's another way that I've been thinking about this beyond beyond the ethics of uh, um, and personality types, but when you're coaching somebody who is, you know, um, more uh, identifies with, for instance, being a mentor, you know, they're doing all the great client relationship work, and they're they're working on uh, programs and learning their client story and all of that. But, you know, are they are they really interviewing to find out the what the real goals of the representation are for this client? And at the same time, are they, you know, ideally I think we, we want to have lawyers who are working in all three channels for our clients, right? And so are we in supervision, are we thinking about ways to encourage them to step outside of the, just outside of thinking about resilience right now, but for the benefit of the client, you know, I see you're doing all this great work for your client. Um, 
if you put on that warrior hat right now, what do you think needs to be done in this case? Where are some, you know, avenues to fight that might soften them up so that you achieve achieve all of these goals? Um, so it, it seems to me that there are ways that you can use this as in, in, in terms of encouraging um, a lawyer to be thinking through each of these lenses for each and every client. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think, you know, like everything else, if you can model it um, in discussions you have and when you're, whether it's telling war stories or talking about things that you've learned, if you can use this terminology and showing how that shift helps you get through something, uh, I think they're more likely to be receptive to you asking them to think about it in that way. Um, does anybody have any uh, questions to say about how Jeff is using this or or about any anything um, that you've heard at this point? Jeff, I, a couple of observations. I mean, I, I was only able to see part of your presentation when you did this in Valparaiso. It, it seems to me in in when we are recruiting and and talking to new I'm talking about uh, attorney staff but it would it would lend itself to all staff that part of what I've seen um, is that uh, the the activist mode isn't something that's oftentimes a uh, I don't know a strong characteristic I mean it, it seems that a lot of our new hires are more towards the mentor role. Um, and I think we, this bears itself out in oftentimes in statistics about litigation and things. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, in, in reassuring people that it's going to take a long time till people have the confidence of being that warrior or that activist and that that's okay? I mean, it, it seems sometimes, and, and, I'm, and, and I guess I'm making a statement, but I'm also asking a question. We, we, I think that we tend to overlook those conversations or don't have those conversations and reassure people that it's okay to be afraid to litigate cases. Um, and because that way they understand that these, these three, the triangle that you're discussing is, is there uh, and, and, and how they would, um, as, as Kathy just said, uh, look at each client individually about what, what um, role they should be taking with those cases. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, doing a, a team building workshop in Eastern Kentucky, where I was doing the uh, the four temperaments approach and teaching this model. And I think about half of you have seen me do the four temperaments. Uh, but I had I had three um, women in the group. One was a brand new attorney. One had been there about three to four years. And the other had been there ten to fifteen years. And they were all idealists in this other temperament personality thing, which is kind of what it sounds like. Um, and and you know, that started out with this mentor approach. And, and the youngest attorney had hit that point where it was the first time that she had a client who lied to her. She believed the lie, and the lie ended up hurting the client. Um, and she was ready to quit. <laughs> it was like, how can I do this work if I want to believe in my clients and that's going to end up hurting my client? And the person who'd been there three or four years was saying, you know, you have to learn to turn that off um, and, and shut that down. And then quickly the more experienced person was saying, no, 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 that's a big part of who you are. Um, you need to do that, but you need to be able to shift into that warrior mode when you need to do that. Um, 
that don't don't give up that kind of core of what you're who you are. So I don't know if that's answering what you're saying, Bill, but that's the story that jumped into my head. I think you know generally what you're saying. You know, it, I guess where it's consistent with what you're saying, that I agree with, is it takes time um, to develop all of these. Like it just the way it takes time to be able to develop a, you know, being able to cross-examine an expert in a DNA case is not going to be something you're able to do necessarily in your first week on the job. Well, and which is uh, what I like. I'm sorry, which is why I like about this so much. You know, certainly you've discussed about how we can use this in, in leadership and training and management too, and, and oversight and supervision. But the you know when we are recruiting, um, you know, of course offices are very different throughout the, 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 the country as to what you're looking for and why. But sometimes I'm I'm not so sure that all of us are having the, the brutally honest conversations with people. You know, we hear individuals say, well, I really believe in the Fourth Amendment, and I'm always like, well, of course you do. That's why you're here. Uh, but ultimately, tell me the last time, you you know, you fought hard on behalf of yourself, let alone another human being. Um, and then, you know, having that honest conversation with folks that it, it will take several years before they're going to have the confidence uh, to, in, in their legal, in their, in their litigation, in litigation skills. Uh, but reassuring people that that's normal and then that that's okay, because I, I tend to see and in, in reading about, uh, including the article that you sent out about how people, you know, they're upset with the system. But I think a lot of it's that they're upset with themselves because ultimately they feel they failed themselves in not having the courage. Um, but you know, we want to do the right thing, but we also are. I don't think as offices sometimes we support people enough when or encourage people uh, to be client-centered in that, you know what, you want a trial, I'm with you all the way, uh, instead of trying to talk them out of it because of the fear of what could happen. And, you know, I, I think it's a different um, lens to talk to new hires about, and I'm trying to encourage our managers and, and um, supervisors when we hire to have those brutal conversations or honest conversations about how, not only how hard this job is, obviously, but ultimately about it's okay to listen to your client about their desire to want to go to trial. Bill, so this is Kathy. Um, you know, I agree with all of that, and um, I have sort of two two thoughts. One is that um, that in terms of Abby Smith's article, her sort of triad for sustainability and resilience is um, uh, the three prongs are respect, um, pride in professional craft, and the third is, uh, you know, a sense of outrage that never goes away. Um, and I think that there's this way in which we as, as leaders and, and trainers, that part of, if we're thinking in the symbolic frame of, of framing for new hires who we are, part of, part of what we can do to set some of this up is to, is to look to the ways in which our organization um, has had victories in the, for instance, activist or the law reform frame by, you know, one of the things I'm really proudest of about CPCS is, is a long legacy of really good litigation and appellate wins and law reform on eyewitness identification. Um, just done good work in that area. And so, you know, I, that's a piece of storytelling that I try to incorporate into um, introducing who we are and that 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 is entirely you can do law reform activism law reform one client at a time by you know 
taking the bigger picture as long as you are doing it um, in a manner that's um, furthering the client's um, interest in the case um, and goals in the case. Um, and that piece about, you know, always fearing that you're, that, that you're, that you're not going to be enough, that in some ways that never goes away. Um, and it's an ally that, that keeps us in, engaged. Um, and being, being honest and talking about that very openly at the beginning I think is really important. And I hadn't really thought about that piece of this in, that, in the way you expressed it um, before today. Um, any other thoughts or, or questions about this, anything that we've talked about so far um, on any of this? Um, Jeff, when we were talking about the, how you've been using the triad um, most recently, one of the things that you wanted to sort of get people's thoughts about and help with is um, how in a, primarily in a, if I understood you correctly, in a tra training context, how we can push people out of their comfort zones into another part of the triad um, to help them develop um, more facility with each of these motivations, but also enhance their skills and knowledge. Did I get exactly. that right? Yeah. <laughs> so part of me putting this call together is what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like your help in brainstorming now and, and down the line when you have time to think about it. Is you know, does it, it make sense? And what would it look like to have a series of exercises that may take place over? You know, years that help folks see the value and you know, and speed up the learning curve, like like Bill was saying, um, using training to help people move around this um, triad and also just feel good about being in different areas of it. I think they're going to be uncomfortable moving to one or another, and we, with a resilience piece, I think you know, ideally you want I think the people I see who last doing this long time feel good about them making a difference in all three of these um, and that they thrive on all three. So I'm, I'm real interested in thoughts about how do we set up exercises or case problems in training that might help with that. I think I'll find, I'll find that as a question and, and feel free to unmute yourself if you have an idea or a thought about that. You know, Jeff, I mean, and, and maybe I'm not answering, this is Bill again, maybe not answer your question, but um, one of the things that you discussed earlier was just when you are working with the group, whether it be you know new hires or more experienced or management, is having them self-identify um, with a you know with with one of the uh, um, uh, you know the mentor, the activist, or the warrior, and then ultimately you know the the for me a case problem is, um, and again I'm just brainstorming off the top of my head is. Although folks have self-identified, and, and you said earlier on that particular day is how they self-identify, 
You know, I, I think you can give them a relatively detailed but short and simple um, case or, or, or um, background on a charge against a client and, and ask people how they would handle that case. Um, and I think that also helps people truly identify as to where they are at that time in their career or certainly that day uh, in that time of their career. Because as you have said over again, that you know we all kind of bleed a little bit of all these different um, um, corners of the triangle. But sometimes I think that actually looking at a particular model or I should say case or an individual and how people would handle things would give them a better perspective as to where they really may fall more so than how they, how they see themselves. I mean, part of the exercises we've been doing with some of our new hires, and in, in, um, in, in fact, in tra trial school a couple of weeks ago, was um, asking people how they perceive themselves. And, and once they've worked with a small group for a short period of time, um, having them convey, you know, how they look at themselves, you know, as far as, you know, so I guess sometimes introverted versus extrovert, confidence versus lack of confidence. And then after their description, have that group who's now been with them for several days either agree or disagree and have them convey how they perceive that individual. And it's been amazing to me the, the difference as to how we see ourselves versus how other people see us. And I'm sure everybody on this call, you know, can say the same thing. I think I'm the nicest guy in the world, and other people don't necessarily feel that way. You know, so I think part of this idea is having a case problem and, and having them talk about how they would deal with that and then um, compare and contrast it to, to the three corners as to, although they may have self-disclosed that they were a warrior or an activist or a mentor, how they were looking at that case might identify them in, in a different way. That's real interesting. What that gets me wondering also is a way to, another way to tweak that might be to have a, a case problem that's designed to kind of choose your own adventure, send you in different directions depending on which one of these you are. Yeah, I like that. Um, and, and you could have them divide themselves into the three groups before you give them the case problem and have them brainstorm the case and kind of set a line of action that they're going to take in that case. Um, and then that could maybe be interesting to then have them swap out and somehow swap with the other people and start, you know, build on what the other people said they were going to do or combine them all in some way they see the value of all three of them and how they may differ and how they all are part of doing effective job for your client. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot too. The, especially with each group reporting out what they what they would do and what their strategies would be, um, coming at it from from that you know from from a place of of comfort, so that they're you know that they're really producing as as a group, and then having the whole group put the whole thing together, and it would be a completely lovely way to show how you can do each and every one of these, that each of these things runs through good representation for every client, looking, looking for opportunities and um, to work in each of these sort of channels, for lack of a better word. I like that. What, what other ideas are there out there?
Jeff, hi, this is Steve Van Dyke from CPCS. Um, <clears throat> I really like the piece where you talked about how people deal with their frustrations when they bump up against uh, an unexpected fork in the road, like you've put together the entire program for somebody involving treatment and a sentencing disposition that's going to keep them out of jail and they choose to go to trial in an unwinnable case. And so maybe as part of this case problem, we get people to explore the in the face of such frustration on each of those levels. So maybe that's it for the mentor, the warrior's ready to go but has to plead. The activist wants to make a point about the injustice of this charge but has to humble themselves in a plea negotiation with the prosecutor. What can they yeah. take away from that experience that still has been a net positive for them and for the client, for the system? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, then it becomes kind of a multiple step case problem, um, like some of the scenarios that the Gideon's Promise and other folks are doing where you play it out several steps down the line. Um, and I like that, that thought of the, the warrior having to play a humble role in front of the prosecutor to get where they want to go. Um, that's interesting. Jeff and I had talked about, um, we do some hypos that, um, frankly, once again, I, re I just feel wildly from everyone else. And, um, uh, so Rep has um, some client-centered hypos that are set up to just really put people in really difficult positions and force them to work through. And one of them is uh, a client counseling situation with a client who's decided um, that he or she is not going to court that day. And um, and so the challenge, it's a role play, and so the challenge is for the lawyers who are switching in and out is to, um, the goal of the exercise is number one, to help people learn that it really is a mistake to make promises that are not within your control. And um, so the role is designed to try to get them to do that. And the other though is to is just assure that the person is figuring out what is really going on with the client, what's motivating that decision today, and um, and in the long run for the goals of the case. And and secondarily, or and in a related way, is that they're actually doing a really good job of counseling the client on the pros and cons of that decision um, through the role of lawyer as um, counselor and advisor. And so we were we were talking about whether or not um, it would be interesting to get people in that kind of client counseling situation or, or another to explore what, what that conversation looks like um, through each of these um, through each of these pieces of the model, mentor, uh, warrior, or activist, and how the conversation would change. Um, so that was that was sort of a that was one idea for trying to push people out of their comfort zones and um, try on another way of being. I don't know what people think about that. 
I see some problems with it myself. That's why I'm stumbling over it, but I'm still thinking about it. Kathy, it's Marla. If I could just ask, maybe I'm not understanding correctly, but are you saying that you would take somebody in 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 carrying out the hypothetical, somebody who maybe self-identifies as a warrior, and and asking them to work through the McDonald's hypothetical as a mentor or as activist? Is, that, is am I understanding correctly? Like to put on a different hat to see how they can use uh, tap into different their own. Uh, tap into these different models to sometimes work through challenging situations. Is that what you're saying? I just want to make sure I understand. Sure. You know, or let them, let them go through the conversation the first time and then, um, and if it sort of falls onto, you know, into the main theme of the, of the client counseling has fallen into one of these, you know, things that, that you can sort of see, forcing them on a, not forcing, but asking them on a redo to switch hats. Mm -hmm. um, and try the conversation again from from a different point of point of view or from a different mindset. And, and I'm not sure it works all that well in in. Um, I, I don't know. I'm still thinking about about this. There's a lot going I, on. I, some I think it. I think it would be really challenging with new or it could be really challenging with new attorneys, but I think with more experienced attorneys maybe demonstrating a little bit too or, or that that could be a good opportunity to pull in some more experienced attorneys too to go through how they might do that they they might just have a better i I'm just thinking out loud too you know it might be a nice way to to engage some some more experienced attorneys in the conversation too and have them um sort of think about other times they've had to do that. They've had to tap into some other different motivation um, to to work through a challenge. So but I, I think new attorneys might have a hard time. I'm not I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. No, I I don't I, I don't think that's the problem. I I'm not I'm not I'm not sure this is the best use of this. I'm just I'm just taking up um the the flag for for trying to Think about how to push people out of their comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think Kathy did their. Because this call was to help Jeff, remember? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's what this whole group is about. Um, I think, Kathy, what, what I could see doing, you know, the, the, the hypo that we talked about is one where the lawyer's meeting the client at McDonald's across the street, and the client doesn't want to go in to find out whether they're going to get probated or not. And the lawyers in this situation of trying to help the client make the best decision there, um, but I think you could use this in in that scenario really well as a facilitation technique or a coaching technique where one person does it, and you ask the group, you know, if you had to pick which one of these three areas, which one do you see going on the most here? Um, and it may be that activist doesn't raise its head as much with that kind of case problem. But then you could say, okay, you could either coach the person who's doing it. What if, what if you shifted to a more of a mentor approach here or more of a warrior approach here? What would that look like? Or tap out and say, who can come in and show how a mentor might address this issue? Um, so you could use it as just as a way to get people to come at it from a different area so you get a more rich role play for discussion that you have afterwards. You know where it might really work um better than the than the 
actual factual scenario uh, of the McDonald's typo is like in a police in a plea conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets at some of what um, what Bill was just talking about uh, about that we that we all know is true is that um, a lawyer's fear of trying the case sometimes influences the way they whether they mean for it to happen or not sometimes influences the way they talk to the client about about a plea offer. Well, I, I think it, it it always does, right? I mean, whether we intentionally do it or not, I think that Kathy make a very good point. How we how we discuss the nego the plea negotiations, how we discuss the plea offer, oftentimes is influenced by our own confidence as to whether we can be successful, or you know, our confidence as far as you know, just even public speaking. Um, but I, I I like the idea of you know, here's an offer. Um, you know, a person gets to go home. Uh, but you know, as everybody knows anything could happen at trial. It's about you know the average 50-50 type of shot. Uh, but the, we've got a bunch of collateral consequences, and uh, but you can keep the person out of prison versus the person who's got a, a different competence level, maybe too much competence level, absolutely take it to trial. Uh, that could be some fascinating role play there. Um, you know, everything from the, the client saying, well, how many cases have you won? Uh, versus how many you've lost. Are you confident in this case? Can you reassure me I'm going to win? Uh, versus the, the lawyer who just basically says, what do you want to do? I'll do whatever you want to do kind of thing. Uh, versus the person who really tries to understand the true desires of the client in, in, in a meaningful way about what their, not only what their expectations are, but what their biggest fears are. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that's... Um one of the biggest frustrations for, for new lawyers are those sort of 50-50 discussions during the plea where they feel like they're all ready for trial and they don't go to trial. And once the plea's over and they leave that morning, they're questioning whether they're to blame or whether they're warrior enough. So I think that's a very helpful hypothetical. Hi, this is Tracy um, from CBCS. Uh, I was thinking you could do a similar thing with a bail hypo um, in terms of you know trying to have the new lawyers get a, an agreement to a bail that, you know, the client could make with the DA versus just you ask for what you want to ask for, I'm going to ask for what I'm going to ask for, and we'll let the judge decide, and then have someone do it as more of a mentor and like, well, you know, we can set up this pre-trial probation and we can get you hooked up with these services and see somehow whether, you know, if they can pick out which ways they're most comfortable arguing or kind of push themselves past what they would normally gravitate to and maybe into one of the other categories. And yeah, negotiations, would, this would really show up nicely in a negotiation typo. Because there you really do intentionally want to really be, depending on who your advers adversary is, um, Adopting the right um, the right approach. I mean the the approach that's tuned to have the most effect on on your listener.
cool. I've got my my mind spinning. I've got three or four different scenarios going through my head. So this this is great. Um, does anybody else have any um, questions or thoughts or ideas or Jeff anything any final thoughts that you would like to leave us with if nobody speaks up? I think that well, I'll wait and see if anyone speaks up. I, I that was a I I suckered you on that. <laughs> it was compound. It was really compound. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'll jump in real quick. This is Patrice. Hey, from, uh, MOPD. You know, I think what's interesting is that we recently did a training, which is one of the most difficult trainings we've done so far with our post-conviction defenders because, you know, we were doing it on client-centered, you know, stated interest versus uh, best interest practice. And, you know, when they're getting the cases, they're at the end, right? <laughs> this is their last resort. And so they're used to, you know, dealing with the situations where the client wants to raise a thousand issues for their petition. And maybe one is based on the law, right? <laughs> And so dealing with that dynamic, um, we use, you know, the principles of the triad to try to get them to understand that it's more than just their representation at this point with um, the petition, right, their, their, their final, I guess, plea to the court to get their case um, overturned. It, it was a matter of getting them to understand and think more so in terms of the social worker or the mentor to get back into that mindset with this case, what other issues are going on as to why they want to raise 101 issues? Well, the biggest thing is that they're at the end of the rope, right? This is the last stop. And so I think, I mean, we let them come up with a hypothetical because it was, you know, some specific issues that they're dealing with. And the hypothetical was kind of like one of those impossible situations to win where the client wants to raise an issue that is completely contrary to the law, no matter how you look at it. And then how do you approach that? Do you add it in the petition? Um, are there other ways you can do it such that you're still fighting? And so I think it really pushed them using the triad to, to think about other ways of doing things as opposed to this is how we always do it, right? We usually just um, not do it, <laughs> which destroys the relationship, or we just let let them take the stand and they argue that issue and we argue these other issues, um, trying to get them to think about how can they still remain client-centered and, you know, do what's ethical, and, you know, in each case. And so this has been very helpful in terms of thinking out different scenarios. And I think, you know, people were talking about using it with younger lawyers, but I think it helps definitely with, you know, lawyers who've been practicing a long time because I found that, it helps them to reevaluate and kind of think about, like you were saying, the different points where they've shifted in their careers. Um, what were the motivations at that time? Yeah. yeah, that makes sense, Patrice. I, I didn't realize you used the triad that that day. Yeah, I mean, it it, it kind of <laughs> organically came out in our discussions as we were trying to get them to work through these 
these hypos, which were tough because they were like, look, I've been doing this 20 years. This is what we do. <laughs> you know, it's like, which is just, it was just, you know, difficult for me because I was like, okay, wait a second. How do you just do that? And <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, I'll let the client argue the bad issues and then we'll just argue the good issues and then the judge will sort it out. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it took some, it, it took some work. Yeah. But that that actually is a good point, um, uh, Patrice. That that I've been thinking about with um, Brad. When we, so I'm getting we're um, working on our new lawyer training course that'll start at the end of August, and so I've been really thinking a lot about it. And we always introduce the triad very early on in the course with our lawyers because it winds up coming back in other conversations. But this is. That's one of the values of this, um, Jeff, is like that there are times when, you know, you're in a training situation or working with a supervisee or or whatever, right? And suddenly this appears for you out of out of the recesses of your mind as a way to structure a conversation um, in a really helpful way. Um, it, it's really useful in, in those kinds of facilitation situations. Um, it's it's just a great tool, um, just is. Well, thanks, thanks all. I, I guess I'll, I'll say my last words, Kathy, and you can wrap it up. Um, I, I appreciate. I have, I have a bunch of ideas now spinning into my head. Um, please, if you guys think of other stuff, uh, send them to me or send me stories about how you are using them. Um, I kind of particularly like the case problem idea that Bill started us out thinking about. I mean, I may start playing with that um, for this fall, and I may send it out to folks for feedback on our Slack group. Um, and I encourage you folks to join in. I know um, so we have several new people on this call, as well as some who haven't gotten into the Slack community there. Um, I send out an email, hopefully every Monday uh, or Tuesday this week, uh, reminding people to just post what you're working on this week on the Slack page. And um, that spins off frequently. Someone will post, I'm working on X. And then uh, most commonly it's Andre who said, I just did that. Here's my PowerPoint. Um, but that sort of synchronicity happens there. Um, we actually had, a, I, got, I was reached out to by a blog about the law or about, about the law, I think it is. Um, they wrote a, wrote a blog post about our Slack page and, and kind of the motivations behind why we're using it. And that, that's a big one there for me is to try to get that. But the thing that happens at those conversations we have, have when we happen to be training in the same place to have a Slack page. Um, so I encourage you to check that out, look back through old conversations and make sure you add what projects you're working on there. Um, and my bet is someone will reach out to you with help or resources along the way. And I will pass things back to Kathy to wrap things up. Well, I, Jeff, um, I just want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank everybody who um, signed on to the call. And um, thank you for not letting us disappear into the summer um, thing where it's so hard to, to connect with one another. This was uh, thanks for your ideas and for your participation. And please let us know how this is working. Please. You know, keep paying it forward with um, with these ideas by visiting Slack and, um, and and sharing your experiences as Jeff just talked about. And Jeff, um, once again, thanks for um, thanks for captaining our ship. Uh, we're very grateful to you. Hope everybody cool. has an awesome weekend. Thank you.
My thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.